Alright, so Revelation 13, and look at, let's look at verse 1 real quick. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. So again, here in Revelation, we have a, a vision, one that is not literal. I do not believe that there's going to be a literal beast with seven heads and ten horns that's going to come up out of the sea one of these days. This is something, it, it represents something. And one thing that we want to make sure we do whenever we are talking about something that's symbolic or that represents something is whatever conclusion that we come to, it's important that it has some type of biblical precedent. Alright? Because too often, people will take things that are symbolic and they just run with it and they go wherever they want. I've been reading the book, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, that, I mean, shaped the thinking of thousands of pre-trib preachers and cemented things in their heads like crazy. And I've noticed that guy did that. I mean, he did that a lot where he would just take things and he just kind of run with it. And because that book got so mass produced, because it was repeated so much, there's certain things that got cemented in people's heads, especially the city on seven hills, which everyone says is Rome. Alright? For years people have been saying it's Rome. And I think a lot of that is because of what's in that book. That's what he says it is. It's Rome because Rome is a city on seven hills. We're going to look at that a little bit later. But wait a minute. So the city on seven hills, that mean that just means Rome? Okay. Do you have a biblical precedent for that? Is there anything in the scriptures that makes it clear that that is what that's talking about. And I'm going to show you that's not what that's talking about. All right, that that is not a reference to Rome, and I think that's the seven hills. I think it's very clear what they are. But and and I had never even seen this until I was studying for this. I'm like, wow, that's that's real clear. Yeah, that's that's not talking about Rome. It's talking about the city on seven hills. What's that actually talking about? And I'll I'll show you in a little bit. But I want to say too, before I get to verse 18, alright, the, the, you know, 666, alright, this is where the 666 is. And that's another thing people take and they just kind of run with it and they just kind of do whatever they want with. And they'll start talking about, you know, the barcode, how the two lines that they have on the ends and in the middle are all sixes and it was, you know, barcode. And first off, I don't even know if that's true. I don't know how to read a barcode with the naked eye. And second of all, I don't even think that makes sense. And honestly, I wish I was really hoping by the time I got to chapter 13, I was going to crack the code of 666. I didn't, folks. All right, I didn't crack the code of 666. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. All right, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time speculating because any theories I have, I don't have a biblical precedent for it. So I'm not going to go, you know, put it out there like it's fact. All right, I want to focus on the things that we know. That's the most important. So here we have this beast, and I, I believe that this beast that we see, it represents a world kingdom. I believe it represents the world kingdom of the Antichrist, the one that is to come. Look what it says in verse 2 about this beast. It says, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, 
and all the world wondered after the beast. So notice this beast has a combination of animals. Uh, you know, it has the leopard, the bear, uh, the mouth of a lion. Okay. Now that's interesting because if you go back to Daniel chapter seven, turn to Daniel chapter seven, and what I'm talking about right now, what I'm covering, I think most people across the board are in agreement on what this represents. Uh, even pre-tribbers would agree with us on this. But um, in Daniel chapter 7, uh, in this, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and he told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And the four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Now I want to say too, I think a lot of times when the Bible talks about the sea, uh, often these beasts are mentioned as coming up out of the sea. And I think it's kind of a reference to the whole world. Uh, it kind of represents that too. Maybe because all the waters all connect to each other. You know Why it does that exactly, I don't know. Maybe too, if it mentioned a specific part of land, then everybody's going to wonder well, which part of land, you know, you know, therefore what location. But it mentions the sea. It's kind of just a reference to the whole world, okay? And most of the world is water too, which might have something to do with it. I don't know. It's just my opinion. But notice these four beasts that come up that are diverse one from another. It says the first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings, and I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast second likened to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this also beheld lo another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue of the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were the three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, what I believe we see right here, and I think pretty much everybody agrees, these beasts that are mentioned represented coming world kingdoms. That first one that was a lion, that represented Nebuchadnezzar or the Babylonian Empire. You have the bear that comes up after that, which represented the Medes and the Persians, which was the next empire. After that, you have the leopard, which represented the Greek empire that came after that. And then that fourth beast represented Rome. And Rome was that fourth world empire that came. And that was the, uh, the ones who was in control and in charge during the time of Christ. So we see we have those four different beasts all representing four different world kingdoms. Well, here when we get to Revelation chapter 13, we have one beast that's a combination of all those beasts. Why is that? I personally believe because this is another world empire that's, that's to come. There is going to be another one world government and I believe this beast represents that. 
And so, I think that's why we see the characteristics of all the other one. Because what's to come, it's not necessarily anything new. There's been one world governments before. There has, there has been you know, uh, one world leaders and individuals before. And there is going to be another one that's going to come in the end. And of course, this one's going to be run by the Antichrist, which I think everyone agrees is that little horn that's mentioned in Daniel. Now, I'll say more. I'll probably say more about that here in a little bit. But what, here's what you got. Uh, so turn over to Revelation chapter 17. In order for us to get everything we need to from Revelation 13, we need to go ahead to Revelation chapter 17. Let me show you some things here in Revelation 17. It says, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. So this is the same beast that we see in Revelation 13. I doubt there's two beasts that both have seven heads and ten horns. It says, The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. When something was, it means it was alive. And it is not means it was dead. Okay? And shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Alright? This is where Rome comes from. Because there's seven mountains that are mentioned. And Rome, historically, is known as the city of seven hills. Alright? That's where that comes from. But is there any biblical precedent for that? Does the Bible ever refer to Rome as the city of seven hills? Alright? Or was God just putting this in there as something we were supposed to figure out later? Or is there some biblical precedent so we're supposed to know what these mountains represent? And I personally believe they do represent something. I think the Bible actually tells us what they represent. Right? I, I think we're about to see exactly what it represents. So it's, look what it says. So the seven heads are seven mountains on which a woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is. And the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. So right here, it's not telling us it's a geographical location. It tells us right here, these are seven kings. These seven kings, it says five are fallen and one is. What's that talking about? Well, the preterists say that's talking about Rome. And they had five kings. And when John was written, uh, you know, there was the sixth king at the time. And the one after that was going to be the Antichrist. Wrong. Alright? That's dead wrong. Here's what the five king. Here's what the five kingdoms are. I believe. Uh, let me look at my notes. Make sure I get this right. I believe these seven hills are these seven mountains. I'm sorry, are references to the seven world kingdoms of the or the world kingdoms of the past, including the one that's to come. Okay. So, for example, how many world kingdoms have there been in history? Well, we know Egypt was one, don't we? Okay, remember it says five are fallen. So we have Egypt that was a world power. You had the Assyrians that became a world power before Daniel was written. When Daniel was written, 
The Babylonians were the world power, were they not? After Babylon, you have the Medes and the Persians. After the Medes and the Persians, you have the Greeks. Right? Did I get ahead of myself? So Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Medes and the Persians, Greek, and then Rome. Okay? So Rome was in power during this time. So we have five that are fallen and one is. That's talking about Rome. And then, so notice what it says again. I lost my spot. So five are fallen and one is. That's Rome. And the other is not yet come. That is what is to come. Okay? And I believe this is a reference to the Antichrist. Okay? And look what it says. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. I believe the Antichrist is going to do his thing for three and a half years. I believe the Antichrist will be a regular human. Okay? But then I, I personally believe what we see here, I believe he is going to die. And I believe he's going to be, he's going to resurrect, but he will be inhabited by Satan. It will be the devil himself. So look what it says. It says, when you come, you must continue a short space. And the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. Alright? Well, let's, let's look at this slowly. So we've had the one that is that's mentioned, that's the sixth, right? Well, they're long gone now. The Roman Empire fell you know, a long time ago. But now, this seventh that comes, that will be the Antichrist. So the beast that was, or the one that's dead, he was that seventh king. Okay? Or the seventh mountain. And it says, the beast that was and is not, he's dead, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh and goeth into perdition. How can he be the seventh and the eighth? I'll tell you why. Because the guy who physically dies is not going to be the guy who comes back to life. It's going to be the it's going to be Satan himself. That's him going into perdition. Just like Judas Iscariot, he was known as the son of perdition. Why Satan entered into him? And I believe that's what's going to happen with this antichrist. So the seventh is the antichrist who dies, and when he rises from the dead, he becomes the eighth because it's physically him, but in reality it's Satan, isn't it? Does that make sense? All right, we all we all get that. Okay, good. So, um, I, so lost lost my spot. So look at verse 12. It says, "...in the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have not received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. And these shall make war with the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful." So basically, these ten kings... What this one world, what's going to happen in this one world government? There's going to, they're going to have ten kings, but what are they going to do? They are going to give all of their power and all of their authority to one man, aren't they? And that man will be the Antichrist. And so they're only going to continue a short space. So the seven hills or the seven mountains—I keep saying hills because that's what everybody says. You know, thank you, late great planet Earth. Okay, but it says seven mountains. That is a reference to the seven kings. 
And Revelation flat out tells us that. It tells us that if we read, five are fallen. Have any of those mountains in Rome fallen? No, because it's not talking about mountains. It's talking about kings. Five are fallen and one is and other is yet to come. Okay? So, it's not talking about Rome right there. But that's what... you know. And you'll never get that out of the 70s generation's head. Just like you'll never get them to get rid of being pre-trib, you'll never get them to get that out of their head because what happened to these preachers in the 70s did irreversible damage, I'm convinced. We will never get the 70s generation on board with post-trib doctrine. It's just never going to happen. I'm convinced. I'm just. I'm convinced of it. They got brainwashed. I. I don't. Maybe not completely beyond repair, but I don't see it getting repaired in a big way anytime soon. But anyway, so look at what it says in Revelation. Um, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So look at Daniel two thirty-five. All right. Let me show you this too. Okay, because just to show you too, there is previous. Biblical precedent for saying these mountains are kingdoms. Okay? First off, it pretty much spells it out for us in Revelation 17, but it's not the first time we see a mountain referred to as a kingdom. In fact, if you go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 35, this is after the vision of the image. Uh, remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of an image and it had the face of gold that represented the Babylonian Empire. It had the uh, shoulders and the arms of silver, which represented the Medes and the Persian Empire. And then it had uh, the loin area of brass that represented the Greek Empire. And then it had the legs of iron that represented the Roman Empire. And then it had the feet mixed with iron and clay that re- with the ten toes that are specifically mentioned that represents that kingdom that's to come. We're not going to take time to read through all of that. But look at what it says in Daniel 2.35. After that vision, it says, Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay? Now, what is that stone talking about? Everybody would agree that stone that takes out the feet of that image, everyone agrees is talking about Jesus Christ. And what does it say about that stone? That stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Why? Because that's referring to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's kingdom, it will be a global kingdom. It will cover the face of the whole earth. And it will be one that will never be defeated. And so right there we see an example in Daniel of a kingdom, the kingdom of a man, Jesus Christ, being referred to as a mountain. And so we have kingdoms in the past. They're symbolized as a mountain. The one that's to come is symbolized as a mountain. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, it's symbolized as a mountain. So when we have the seven mountains that are referred to in Revelation chapter 17, there is absolutely no reason for us to think that's talking about Rome. Absolutely none. Okay? It's talking about <clears throat> world kingdoms. You can say the sixth mountain is Rome. Go ahead and do that. Alright? The sixth mountain was Rome, but not the rest of it. So look what it says. Let's go back. So let's go back to Daniel now, or uh, Revelation chapter 13. 
In verse 3, it says, And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. So what I believe that we're seeing right here is the devil is counterfeiting the resurrection. Okay? Remember, he is the Antichrist. He's not against Christ. He's in place of Christ or another Christ. The prophecies in the Old Testament are very clear about the resurrection of Christ. I don't care what the Ruckmanites say. The resurrection is all over the Old Testament. There's no getting around it. The death, burial, and resurrection is all over the Old Testament. And you know what? The Antichrist, in order to fool the world, he's going to need to have a death, burial, and resurrection. And you know what? He's going to have one. But it's a counterfeit. It's not the real one. It's not the real one already happened, and that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there is going to be another resurrection, I believe, of the Antichrist. And so after this happens, of course, the world's going to be very impressed. And look what it says in verse 4. It says, And they worshiped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So this dragon that they're worshiping clearly is Satan himself. It says in Revelation 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And they, he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. So the dragon, it is, it is Satan himself. He's the one that gave power to the beast. He is the one that somehow is able to give life to that person again. And it's going to be Satan that's dwelling him. And the people are going to worship him. And this will be full-fledged devil worship that's going on like never before. And you know what? I don't think it's going to look like the devil worship that we see going on today. I don't think it's going to be a bunch of people dressed up in black robes you know, with makeup and vampire teeth and all that kind of stuff. I think it's going to be a lot of people wearing yarmulkes and long beards and prayer shawls. And, and you know what? And I think we're going to see a lot of Christians too that look like Christians. And Catholics and all these people, they're going to be worshiping the devil. But, you know, you know, they think they're worshiping Christ. But, you know what? They're not. They're worshiping the devil. Who cares what they're thinking? The reality is, it's the devil that they're worshiping. He has deceived them. So, look, um, look at verse 5. Now, something I've been saying for a while, and, you know, I've, it's had me scratching my head, and, you know what? I, uh, I think I could definitely say I was wrong on this. I've been saying one of the things that's kind of confusing for me when it comes to the book of Revelation is like, why is the abomination of desolation not mentioned? I mean, it's such a key event in end times. It's mentioned over and over again in Daniel. It's mentioned in Matthew chapter 24. The Apostle Paul mentions it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Why doesn't the book of Revelation talk about the abomination of desolation? Well, you know what? Actually, it does. It just doesn't use that term, abomination of desolation. When you put two and two together, I mean, it's crystal clear. It's talking about the abomination of desolation right here. Look what it says in verse 5. So this is after they've been worshiping the beast. It says in verse 5, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. All right, right there. That's it. 
That is the abomination of desolation. Verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme His name and His tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. That is the abomination of desolation. And let me, let me prove it to you. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's go to the forbidden passage of 2 Thessalonians 2 that makes pre-tribbers run away screaming. Alright? So, so it doesn't say abomination of desolation right there. Okay? But what is the abomination of desolation? Okay? The abomination of desolation that we know happens in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. That's crystal clear from the book of Daniel. We know in Matthew 24, Jesus said, He specifically mentioned when He see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. We're not going to go back and read all the passages in Daniel, but in the book of Daniel, it's very clear how in the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist is going in there and he's exalting himself is what he's doing. He's speaking these great things. And look what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. It says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, talking about the day of Christ or the rapture, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. Pay attention to this, alright? Because Schofield got this dead wrong, and this is another thing cemented in pre-Trivers' head that you just can't get rid of. They love Schofield too much. But it says, And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Okay? So notice in this event that everybody would agree is the abomination of desolation. What does he do? He goes into the temple. It, you know, he's announced, pronounced, exalting himself above all that is called God. He sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Okay? Everybody agrees that's what the abomination of desolation is. And look, at, and so when we see Revelation 13, verse 5, it says, There was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Why? Because we're in the middle of the week. We've got three and a half years left. It says that he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So, what other event could this be? We know from 2 Thessalonians that the Antichrist is going to go into the temple declaring himself to be God. Here we have him speaking great things and blasphemies and even specifically mentions his tabernacle. So this right here is the abomination of desolation. It just doesn't use that term. And so, 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-7, through what I believe we're seeing right here is this is a reference to the death of of the Antichrist. Okay? Now, Schofield teaches that the he who now letteth will let till he be taken out of the way. 
I was talking about the Holy Spirit. That means before the rapture can come, alright, because this is the way they do it. You know, before all these things, like, it makes no sense. Like, before the rapture can come, the rapture's got to happen. It's the way that whenever they, I mean, I've literally heard them almost say it that way. It's crazy the way they try to explain this because what they do is they ignore this part where it says that day shall not come except these things happen first. They just ignore that and then they say that He who now letteth let. What does that mean? It means the Holy Spirit, the Restrainer, has got to be taken out of the earth and when that takes place when the rapture comes. When the rapture comes, it takes all the believers out Leaving the you know Holy Spirit influence, you know it's it's gone, and they always use that word restrainer too. Where does that all come from? It all comes from Schofield. It's in Schofield's notes. If I had a Schofield Bible up here, uh, I'd be desecrating my pulpit. But I could read you Schofield's notes, and you could see the foolishness of that, and it's in their head. But no, folks, this is a reference to the death of the Antichrist. Because let's look at this again. So we have the seventh who is going to be an anti, the Antichrist, he's going to die. When he dies, what's going to happen? The dragon is going to give power to the beast. Uh, he's going to go into perdition. Satan is going to enter into him. He's going to counterfeit the resurrection. And so what I personally think that's talking about right there is he's talking about to the basically the Antichrist gets out of the way. And once he's out of the way, then Satan is going to enter into him, and then he's going to go into perdition. And at that time, that's when it's going to be revealed who the Antichrist is. That's why we might not be sure who it is during the first part of the tribulation. I don't think we're going to know for sure until the abomination of desolation. All Scripture seems to point to that being the defining moment. I think we can speculate. We might be pretty sure when we when he comes on the scene, we you know you know those of us who are really watching and paying close attention. I mean, we might be sure. You know, I'm keeping my eyes on Jared Kushner right now. You know, it might be him, and we you know we I I don't know that, but if people you know it could be, you know, and if I was to peg it and say I think it's Kushner, I could be right, but I don't think we'll know for sure until the abomination of desolation, until we see Jared Kushner or whoever die and come back to life. When that happens, that's when we're going to know. That's when we'll be sure. And it says, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who not letteth will let till he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. So I believe at that time, that's what's, when it's going to be Really clear. And he said, well, wait a minute. Uh, and this was a question I had when I first had that presented to me. I'm like, no, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How could Paul have written about this before John wrote about it? You know, that was my thing. You know, some of my preacher friends get on to me sometimes. I mean, you're still thinking like a pre-tribber. Uh, you still get some of that dispensational stuff in your head. You know? And it's like, no, John revealed the resurrection of the Antichrist. Therefore, Paul couldn't have known about it. You know, well, why couldn't Paul have known about it too? You know, 
Your dispensational books make it like, no, they couldn't have known about it until this point. But look what it says. And that, you know, Actually, Brother Perry brought this verse up to me because I asked him about this one time. And I'm like, how, how, could, how could Paul have known about that? God didn't reveal it until John. But you know, And he brought this verse up to me. And I was like, well, this is a good point. 2 Corinthians 12.7 says, "...unless I should be exalted above measure..." Through the abundance of revelations, there was given in me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. This is after he uh, talks about how he went and uh, went up into the th- was caught up into the third heaven, and he saw unspeakable things or unlawful be uttered. He had revealed an abun- he, abundance of revelations. Paul knew a lot of stuff, and there is no reason why Paul could not have known about this. There's no reason why God could not have revealed it to Paul and Paul could have talked to these people about it. You say, well, why didn't Paul say more about it? He didn't give enough details. Well, God didn't have him write it because he knew John was going to write about it later. There's no reason why. It actually fits perfect. It actually makes sense. It makes a whole lot more sense than saying the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out of the world. So much for the omnipresence of God. When you can remove the Holy Spirit, that doesn't even make any sense. But I do. I believe that that is a reference to the death of the Antichrist. Why? Because the Antichrist is going to rise from the dead. And when that takes place, it is going to be revealed. And I believe Satan's first order of business, the first thing that Satan is going to do when he has a human body, because you know what? He can't be born of a virgin you know, like Jesus was. He doesn't have that ability. He doesn't have that kind of power. He is not able to be born somehow, you know, like Rosemary's baby or something like that, or or the omen or all these movies where the Antichrist is born. He doesn't have that kind of power, but you know what, maybe he does have the power to, you know, inhabit a corpse. I don't know. I have no idea. You know, I, I don't know how it's going to work exactly, but I do think that is uh, that's what's going to take place, and so you know the only contradiction that that has is just with dispensational books. You know that doesn't contradict anything in the Bible, but it does contradict uh, dispensational books. So the abomination of desolation. This is a question that always comes up too, because it's like, well, wait a minute. You know, sacrifice. You know, if a temple were to be built now, how can the the abomination of desolation happen there? Because it's not going to be a holy place. Right? Now, the dispensationalists will say, well, it will be then because they're going back to the Old Testament economy. Really? You know, this blood of bulls and goats, it never healed, you know, cleansed anybody of their sins before the cross. But it's going to, you know, after the rapture? That's just foolish. And people think, how could that be an abomination? How could that be blasphemy? To go into a temple that's a fake temple that's not one sanctioned by God and do His thing. Well, I actually think it can be because, for example, would we not all agree that movies portraying Jesus are blasphemous? Aren't they? I mean, you think about movies like um, The Last Temptation of Christ. I'm not seeing that one. But doesn't he supposedly mess around with Mary Magdalene in that movie, from what I've heard? Now, would we not all agree that that is disgusting blasphemy? 
to have some it is blasphemy to have someone pretend to be Christ and to do that kind of wickedness. We would all agree that that's blasphemy. And so would it not be blasphemous for someone to build a temple and say this represents the temple of God and then for someone to go in there and to call himself God? Is that not blasphemous? It would be blasphemy. It would be an abomination if I got up in here and I was, you know, I just said, you know what, folks, this place is the temple of God. You know, like the Old Testament, this is it, and you know what, I'm God. Would that not be an abomination? Would that not be blasphemy? And so, listen, even if it's a fake temple over there that you know God did not sanction, it will be wicked. It will be blasphemy. It will be an abomination when they go into a when the Antichrist goes into a counterfeit temple and he declares himself to be God. And you know what? It makes sense that that's going to be the first thing Satan would do because Satan has always wanted to be in the place of Christ. Satan has always wanted to be like the Most High. That's what brought him down. And it makes sense. Satan, who has probably seen the temple that's in heaven, was you know loved to go walk into a counterfeit temple here on earth, the closest thing that he can get to it, and declare himself to be God. It, I mean, that's exactly what he would do. And that is exactly what he's going to do. And so, if you have a fake Messiah going to a fake temple declaring himself to be the one true God, that would be blasphemy. Especially after faking the resurrection. After a counterfeit resurrection. After Him too. And you know how they're going to spin this too. Okay? And I don't know this for sure. I'm going outside the Bible right here. But think about it. If He receives a deadly wound, it's probably going to be from an assassin. Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you? I, mean, it's, I remember in the Left Behind books, it was one of the Christians. There were several of them that all tried killing the Antichrist. Not realizing what they were going to do. And one of them stuck a sword through his head is what they did. But I remember... I remember that in the story. But you know what? Would it be a sin to shoot the Antichrist in the head? I don't know. I know he's not, he's not going to stay dead. But I would enjoy getting to shoot the most wicked man in history. You know, I might even try it. I don't know. I don't know if that would be the will of God or not. But somebody's going to do it. I don't know. <laughs> but, but either way, it's not going to keep him dead. But think about it though. Let's just say I succeeded, alright? I'm going to be running my mouth during the tribulation, alright? I'm going to be running my mouth against the government. I'm going to be running my mouth against the Antichrist. And so if I go and I shoot the Antichrist in the head, you know, what are they going to do? See one of those Christians that's trying to bring our world down? You know what? That the Antichrist, whoever that leader, he died for the people. These people that are trying to stop what we're trying to do, they're trying to stop our progress. And that Antichrist got in the way and He died for us. You know they're going to be saying that. And boy, they're talking about Him like He's this Savior. And then all of a sudden, He rises from the dead. What do you think they're going to do with that? They are, they are going to go nuts with that. And you know what? When the Antichrist goes into the temple and he declares himself to be God... You know, people always said that's when the Jews are going to figure out that you know he's he's bad. No, they're not. I think they're going to worship him. I think they're going to accept him. I need to move on. I've still got a lot more I want to cover. 
So after the abomination of desolation, this is when I believe the mark of the beast takes place. Because after Satan goes, declares himself to be God, his first order business is he is going to go after the remnant of her seed. He is going to try to kill the believers as fast as he can. He immediately is going to do that. And I believe he's going to implement the mark of the beast. It says, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. This is what we saw a couple weeks ago in when we were in chapter 12 with that dragon. He is going after the remnant of our seed who keep the commandments of Christ. He's trying to kill the believers. And so, I think it's interesting too because we don't see the Antichrist really referred to as the beast until after the resurrection. I believe that's why before he's the Antichrist, after that, he is the beast. Why? Because he's Satan himself. Look at verse 8. It says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but this verse can be a little confusing because it's saying everybody in the world is worshiping Him whose names are not written in the book of life. Therefore, if you're not saved, then you're going to be worshiping Him during this time. Therefore, nobody can get saved, Right? Well, actually, no, because what's something that we believe here? We believe in the reprobate doctrine, right? We believe there's people who are reprobate. People's names we often see in the Bible get blotted from the book of life. Okay? But you don't ever see names getting added to the book of life. But I do believe when a person gets saved, their names are sealed in that book of life and their name's never going to get blotted out. But notice how it says everyone whose names are not in the book of life, they will worship the beast. Why is that? Because those who receive the mark, they're done for. There is no salvation for those people. I'm sorry, Bill Grady. They can cut their hands off. They're still going to go to hell. They can pluck out their eye. They're still going to go to hell. I'm sorry, Sluter. The baptism of John is not coming back during that time that can wash off the mark. If they take the mark, their names are removed from the book of life. They are reprobate. They will never be saved. And so, there are going to be people who are not saved, but that doesn't mean they're going to be worshiping the beast. Okay? So, just understand that. I could show a lot more scriptures to help prove that, but I don't want to take a whole lot of time on that. But there will, there will be unsaved people who have not taken the mark who can still be saved. Otherwise, who are these people going to be who go into the Millennial Kingdom? Who survive the wrath of God? There's going to be a lot of people that survive this time. So look at verse 9. It says, If any man have an ear, let him hear. hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. And he that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And I had talked about this a few weeks ago. It had mentioned because it, um, in chapter 3, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. And I, told, I mentioned how that was a reference to the patience of the saints. It mentions in chapter 14, Verse 9, And the third angel followed him, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. If you take the mark, 
you will experience the wrath of God. Therefore, the wrath of God has not come yet. Okay? Wrath of God comes after the mark of the beast. What are, is the pre-tribber's main verse to prove we're out of here for the tribulation? We've not been appointed under wrath. Um, okay, I agree with that. We've not been appointed under wrath. But God's wrath doesn't come till after the mark of the beast. And so, verse 11, "...the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name." Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So that patience of the saints, I believe that is a reference to those who die for their faith. Those who refuse to take that mark. That is, that is patience of the saints. I said a lot more about that. I used, uh, there's other scriptures that talk, you know, that kind of compare, uh, enduring persecution and tribulations as patience. And so, uh, I'm not going to rehash all that again. But look at verse 11. Verse 11. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because now we kind of go into another vision of the false prophet. We'll probably say more about him in future weeks, but let's just briefly go over this. It says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, and he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Okay, Satan, counterfeiter. Okay, he's a counterfeiter. Notice how along with this Antichrist, we have a false prophet who resembles the beast. Now, who does that remind you of? That reminds me of John the Baptist who prepared the way of the Lord. John the Baptist who was mistaken for Jesus. He was mistaken for the Messiah. We see Jesus was mistaken for John the Baptist. Why? Because they had so much in common. And here we have a forerunner, I believe, to the beast, this false prophet. This is his John the Baptist. Satan's trying to copy Jesus. It says, "...and he doeth great wonders." So he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, why is he doing that? Remember when, remember when the uh, disciples came to Jesus and said, hey, the scribes say that Elias must first come. Remember they were confused? And Jesus told them, hey, Elias has come. It was John the Baptist. Okay? So what do you think is going to happen when all of a sudden this guy comes along and he's calling fire down from heaven? What do you think the Jews are going to say? Elijah's back. Just like was prophesied in Malachi, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great noble day of the Lord come. I didn't quote that exactly right. And so here we have this false prophet calling fire down from heaven. This is going to be an imitation of Elijah. Copying off of John the Baptist. It says, "...and he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast." saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. What's he doing? Behold the beast. Worship the beast. What did John the Baptist do? Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the earth. He's copying John the Baptist is what he's doing. It says, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, 
free and bond to receive a mark on their right hand or in their foreheads. And no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is six hundred three score and six. So this false prophet, he's basically the mouthpiece for the beast. He's going to prepare people. He, you know, because it's going to look bad if the beast is telling everybody, "Hey, worship me." You know, you kind of need that prophet to do it for you. That way, you can try to look humble. You know, so you so you can be deceptive. And so, what we basically see here in chapter thirteen is Satan counterfeiting as he always does. Satan is a counterfeiter. He's a phony. He is going to try to pass himself off as Messiah and God. And he's going to have a counterfeit John the Baptist. And he will have a counterfeit resurrection from the dead. And I believe he's going to convince most of the world that he is what the Bible prophesied. Look what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. Notice it says, Whoso opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And look at John chapter 5, verse 43. Because everybody says, when he does this, that's going to be a double cross on the Jews. And the Jews are all going to figure it out. And the Jews are going to reject him. And then he's going to persecute the Jews. Wrong. Look what it says in John 5.43. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. Okay? Jesus did not come in his own name, did he? He came in his Father's name. Okay? That's what he said. I didn't come in my own name. I came in my Father's name. Maybe that's why his name shall be called Everlasting Father. Because he came in his Father's name. He didn't come in his own name. Okay? So, and I don't want to get into, I don't want to get into that a whole lot, but look at this. So he comes in his own name, but he said another's going to, or he came in his father's name. He said another's going to come in his own name. What does the Antichrist do? He declares himself to be God. He exalts himself above all that is called God. That's what the Antichrist does, and what it that does not happen until the abomination of desolation. And what did Jesus tell the Jews? He says, another comes in his own name, him ye will receive. You know what that tells me? These fake Jews, the synagogue of Satan, is going to accept the beast. They are going to accept him. That's what the Bible teaches. There is no way for you to take this and say, no, when he does this, the Jews are going to figure out it's a double cross and then he's going to start persecuting them. No. When another comes in his own name, Jesus said you're going to receive him. The Antichrist comes in his own name and the Jews or the synagogue of Satan will receive him. Why wouldn't the synagogue of Satan receive Satan? I mean, that's what they are. Revelation calls them the synagogue of Satan. Why in the world would they reject Satan? He's the one they're already worshiping. And when he comes in his own name, Jesus said he'll receive, and he does not do that. Okay? The Antichrist is not going to be calling himself God until the abomination of desolation. So, you know, that is just, once again, that's just pre trib nonsense that they cannot back up with Scripture. 
Where does that come from? Where does this double cross idea come from? It comes from their interpretation of Revelation chapter 12. That's where that comes from. We're not going to rehash all that again. Go back and read that. And it's just because they make that all about the Jews, but they are dead, dead, dead wrong on that. So one thing we need to understand about this, when we're looking at it through the Scriptures, especially when we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, you know, we have a hard time believing this is convincing at all. But listen, looking at this from you know, this vision that we're seeing, we're seeing it from a heavenly standpoint with the Holy Spirit inside of us, aren't we? Okay? This vision, you know, we see very clearly that this is a beast. It's calling him a beast, right? Because that's what he is. He's a beast. But here, is he going to look like a beast? Absolutely not. What he is doing is blasphemy and it's wicked. But is it going to look blasphemous and wicked? No. The Bible is very clear the things that Satan does are going to be convincing and deceiving. Matthew 24.24 says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And then 2 Thessalonians 2.9, For even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, and then that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What is to come is going to be very convincing, folks. It, when we're looking at it on our, from the heavenly end with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we're saying, I, I see that for what it is. But if you are not saved, and especially if you are somebody who you knew the truth and you rejected it, you will buy into it hook, line, and sinker. Why? Because it's going to be convincing. It's going to be very convincing. And if there's any doubt, if you're somebody who's rejected the truth, you're going to get the strong delusion. You know why? Because you're a reprobate. Why? Because you knew the truth. Reprobates always knew the truth and rejected it. And those who know the truth and reject it, they will be, they will be deceived. No two ways about it. So thank, you know, we have the Holy Spirit. Thank God we're saved right now. But listen, we do not want to wait until this event to start witnessing. When this stuff starts going down, when the Antichrist comes in the scene, when the abomination of desolation happens, at that point, I mean, forget it. The, the world is going to eat it up. If we're going to convince people, we're going to be trying to get people saved, we need to be trying to do it before all this happens. When that starts happening, it's, I mean, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard to get anybody saved at that point. And so, thank God though we know the truth. And so, I hope, hopefully that was a help to you. I, I know I, I got a lot from Revelation 13. It really helped clear up a lot of my understanding on some of these things. So I, I hope that helped you. But let, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the things you revealed to us. Help us, Lord, to, uh, you know, one thing we need to get from this, Lord, is just the urgency and the need to tell people about you right now before these things start taking place. Lord, there's great deception that's to come. Help us to get people awake early before it's too late. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand. Let's go to.